Welcome to another episode of the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm sitting in the studio with my brother, as always. Hello. Daryl Pace. <laughs> I'm here. And uh, if you are a new listener, I'm Byron Pace. We have new listeners every month, and I can tell you, as of about an hour ago, we've broken our monthly record again. again. Woo! <laughs> so we actually had more people download the show this month than we had on the month that we had Donnie Vincent. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Astounding. And people are still listening to his show and every other show right the way back to episode one. And that's down to all of our listeners and passing on the message that about the show. Yeah, it's so important to do that uh, because the whole point of this is that it's it's a way to let people inside and outside the world of the, the countryside and shooting access really good information and debate. Um, but well, I was going to oh, say something. Go for it. Today, so if you're downloading on the Thursday, what is the date today? What's the actual date? I shall find out. Thursday, the 28th of July, you will be able to see our next episode of Into the Wilderness tonight at some point. That's brave, Daryl. That's very brave. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, We haven't rendered If the not, it's copy. Friday. Yeah. Very, very shortly. So if you don't know about our Into the Wilderness series, you should definitely go and check it out. It's on YouTube. Just search Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness. Like Daryl said, new episode is going to be out either tonight or tomorrow. Yep. We have a competition winner. Let's get that out of the way first. Yep. Uh, two weeks ago, we gave everybody the opportunity to win a set of Coldwell shooting sticks. I'm just going to hold them up for those people who are watching on YouTube. This was them. Uh, Coldwell buy sticks. Yep. Remember, we give away prizes every two weeks on the show. So why wouldn't you want to listen to the show? Yeah. But and why we, wouldn't you want to enter? Why wouldn't you want to enter? So... Therefore, everyone, we're giving them every two weeks. We've given away a load of prizes. How many do you think we've given away now? You know, I think next time I'm gonna we're gonna list everything we've given away because I'd have to go and actually write it down. But uh, bushnell headlamps, trophy cam, trophy cam. Um, I can't remember what a, t- a ton of bushnell stuff and a ton of Coldwell stuff. Yeah, uh, bipod. Uh, Paul Wilkie, yep. we want it. He's coming to pick it up just shortly, actually, from our office. But anyway. Uh, Two weeks ago, gave you a chance to win these Coldwell shooting sticks, and right now we're about to announce the winner. You had to enter by tagging us on Instagram. We have an account, Pace underscore brothers. Go check that out. And the winner, we decided we looked through all the people who tagged us, and uh, Anthony O'Duffy, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, but I think so. You are the winner because you clearly are very dedicated. You tagged us in a couple of pictures, and we, we like... We like what you got to show us. Yep. Uh, so it looks like you have a great time in the countryside. You, you do. So don't forget to claim your prize because we've had one unclaimed prize, which has actually been given away again now. Uh, you have one month. Yes, you do. It's nice and fair. One month and uh, you can, uh, otherwise we'll give it away. Right. Well, we'll tell you what you can win on this show and we're going to tell you how to enter at the end of the, at the, end, of the, at show. the actually end of the show. Yeah. So this week we have... A Spyderco folding knife, which we will put some pictures up uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, I'm going to hold it up to the camera for the YouTube watchers. Um, Spyderco are make some really very cool knives. We've given They're, away their mini knives. Yeah, we have. We have live at um, the Northern, Northern shooting, shooting Show. Show. Yes, we did. We gave away two little mini knives, which are superb. I use my one all the time. I've had it quite a few years. If you don't know the brand Spyderco, uh, just Google them. Go check them out online, um, and we'll put the picture up of the knife that you have a chance to win. Unfortunately, you will have to be over 18 years old because of UK laws to be able to enter this. 
Um, but if you are interested in winning the Spyderco folding knife, then have a listen at the end of the show. We will tell you how to easily enter and win. Yep. Who's today's guest? We are bringing you none other than Diggory Haydock. Yep. The man himself who yeah. f- faced down Pierce Morgan. <laughs> he did. He faced down the wrath of Pierce Morgan, and he did a mighty fine job in incredibly difficult circumstances. And of course, we will be talking about that interview today. Actually, more than that, we're going to actually let you listen to that interview that he did on uh, with Pierce Morgan and Susanna yep. Reid. A few things about this show everyone is one apologize uh, well we apologize for the audio quality at the first part of the show no fault of our own it's terrible rural broadband yeah terrible rural broadband and then you'll notice an audio change when we go into the things that have been pre-recorded such as the pierce morgan interview and also when Diggory is reading out some hate mail, which yeah. is probably one of the most hilarious things I think I've heard for a long time. Yeah, it's uh, for the most part it's good, but there's just one or two little uh, instances in there, just slightly below our high high quality recording levels. <laughs> but there's loads in this show. We're talking about conservation. We're talking about hunting ethics. Hunting ethics. We're talking about old weapons auctions. If you want to go to an auction, we talk about about that. He's an incredibly interesting chap. Yeah who has done a lot in his life. And there's probably few people, uh, not just in this country, but the world over, who know more about uh, old vintage guns than he does. And indeed, he's written a couple of books about it. But you're going to hear all about that right now. There's two things that we wanted to touch on just before we get right into this interview. Uh, The first is that there has just been a grant of £1.15 million given by the Heritage Lottery Fund towards... Uh, increasing the opportunities and proliferation of golden eagles in the southern part of Scotland. That might sound very good. However, my initial reaction was, what a terrible place to try and do it. We're going to hopefully get somebody on at some point in the future to talk about it. Uh, But it seems like a colossal amount of money to encourage golden eagles in a place that they don't nest successfully already. And there are far better places in Scotland that golden eagles actually want to live, do live, and breed successfully. So they should probably be spending part of that money making sure the ones that are breeding successfully carry on. Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, it almost seems like people have looked at a point on the map and said, oh, there's no golden eagles here. Let's spend a lot of money to try and bring them here. Well, hang on a second. You need habitat and food sources mm. and a place that they actually want to nest. You, you gotta, you've always got to ask the question, outside of persecution, why are they not there? So if there's no persecution going on, there must be an underlying reason. But what Byron just said, is the habitat wrong or right? Um, is, the, you know, is the cliffs for them to, to land on? Uh, is there the correct food source? The, you know, these you've got to ask these questions first. Mm. So that's an interesting one, but it, it seems like a little bit of a waste of money to me. But we'll dig into it more in the future. And the last thing is that uh, a lot of people probably have seen in the last week that mm, John one. Swift, mm. who was the head of Basque, uh, recently was a guest blogger <laughs> on none other than Mark Avery's blog. Uh, Mark Avery probably is the most vocal anti-hunting, anti-grouse shooting person. Anti-rich, uh, anti-anything yeah. that... Any, <laughs> anything to do with well, anything uh, shooting. Anything that sells his book, to be honest. <laughs> that is very true, yeah. Daryl. Anything that sells his book. Yeah, he, he is probably the biggest proponent of, of anti-grouse shooting in this country. And uh, John Swift 
went and did a, a guest blog on his page. Mm. Uh, he was also the chair of the Lead Ammunition Group. And it makes for a fairly uncomfortable reading if you read that because there is a man who was head of the, the biggest organization in the UK for 25 years. He was involved. And I have serious questions over to his actual leanings, um, not just towards shooting, but also towards uh, the Lead Ammunition Group and his role there. And from all the evidence that I've read with regard to that, I, I don't think that uh, uh, enough was done to try and prove it either way. I don't think enough effort w went into actually proving that, you know what, lead for shooting is absolutely fine. They put it to bed, basically. And put it to bed. And even if it turned out at the end of the day it wasn't, not enough effort went into actually trying to prove it in the first place. There are a lot of things that could have been done that were not done. And uh, he was the lead during that time, over a period of five years. Um, I think, I think we so. just have to ask some serious questions of how a man like that ended up the head of one of the biggest shooting organizations in this country. Um, it's something that we will undoubtedly tackle again at a later date. It's interesting. I'm sure some more stuff will unfold in the coming months. I am sure. This podcast is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Um, we say it uh, quite often, but if you want to keep up to date with the latest goings on, in the countryside, be that shooting or fishing or dogs related or anything to do with countryside pursuits, go check out their Facebook page because that is uh, updated on a daily, if not hourly basis sometimes because there's a lot of news coming out. Yep. We hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Diggory, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, we're going to get into the, the meat of what everybody, I'm sure, is going to want to hear from you about, which is your interview with Pierce Morgan, which was only a couple of months ago now, I guess. But before we get to that, I want to know a little bit about you, about about the man himself and how you got to where you are today, your early life, how you built up a fascination with hunting and uh, particular guns, and also your, your career in, in academics, which uh, was something I didn't know about until I was doing a bit of research for this podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's always nice to come and talk about these things to people who are interested, um, particularly to put a perspective on things which go below the surface, which uh, unfortunately in mainstream media and the tabloids, people like uh, like peers like to um, like to really avoid the uncomfortable nuances in the argument and uh, and just you know. Um, work on assumptions and misinformation which is really a shame but going back to where i come from i was i was an army child i suppose um, my dad was a doctor in the uh, in the army and we were based in cyprus bahrain germany traveled around the family is an army family my grandparents were um, were in india my grandfather was a career soldier and officer in the gurkhas um, and so my father was born in India while they were serving there. Um, so it seemed a fairly natural thing for dad to go into the army and for us to travel as well. So it, it was a fairly fluid childhood until we came back to Shropshire when I was five years old and he took a job as a general practitioner in a, a country practice and I went to the local school um, where my headmaster, Tony Shepherd happened to be a gun collector. Okay. So my dad always had a few guns around, you know, 10 or 15, I suppose. 
those just stuck in a cupboard that I used to have an interest in, but um, he wasn't really a very keen shooter. Um, and then my school teacher would go to the Birmingham gun auctions at the weekends and come back on a Monday and stick a load of guns on his desk in front of all us seven and eight-year-olds and say, hey, boys, come and have a look at what I bought at the gun auction. That is tremendous. I really wish that had happened I, when I was I can't school. say I've ever heard of a story where I got this from school. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. <laughs> what a teacher. Yeah, absolutely. He was, he was great. And um, so the other things, of course, I, is being in the countryside, I used to run around with the local gamekeeper. Um, there wasn't much to do at home. Uh, we were you know, half a mile away from the nearest other house. So I spent most of my childhood with an air rifle wandering around in the field shooting rabbits, catching fish in the local streams with an old fly rod. And um, that's how I spent most of my time. And then um, a lot of my friends who were farmer's sons used to find old rifles and shotguns and things in their chicken sheds and their barns and because they knew I liked guns, they'd bring them and give them to me and I'd soak them in buckets of oil and take them to bits and find out how they worked and clean them up as best I could and put them back together again and see if I could make them work again. All this is probably giving some, somebody somewhere a heart attack. <laughs> back in the 19, 1970s, some some rural child was was dismantling and reassembling firearms on a completely illegal basis. <laughs> um, but it was the 70s, and uh, everybody in the country had a gun. Licensing laws were different. Um, you know, for a shotgun license, you could have as many shotguns as you wanted. Nobody nobody knew how who got what or how many. Um, and it was a, it was a, a sort of crossover period, I think, between the old days where, you know. Everybody in the countryside spent pretty much all their time wandering around shooting from the age of seven or eight upwards. I certainly did. To the period we're at now where everybody is super paranoid about, the, about their children and they're, um, you know, they're constantly supervised and mm. never let out of sight and never trusted with anything sharper than a crayon. <laughs> um, I think it's a shame, really. Yeah, no, we'd agree with that. Um, so, so that was that was the early childhood, and then um, I so my shooting career carried on like that. Um, air rifle aged eight, shotgun age twelve, um, shooting rabbits and pigeons, beating on the local shoot, um, and then a chap called Peter Williams set up a gun shop in Ludlow. He came in from Birmingham. And I used to go to the Birmingham Gun Quarter with him and photograph the guns that he had for sale and send them around the countryside so that he could um, he could do his gun dealing because, in, of course, in those days there was no internet um, and if you wanted to sell a gun, you had to take photographs, get them developed at Boots, send them in an envelope to somebody, um, answer questions by telephone or, or letter and uh, it was all a more tortuous process. Wow. You don't even you, think about no, that. No, you, do you? you don't. You don't think about how how difficult it was. No, indeed. Um, all much easier these days. You know, I, I operate globally now and sell guns all over the world, mostly by email and telephone call. Um, my my academic life was um, was sparked in in uh, 1989 when I moved out and spent a year travelling in India, then ended up in Thailand. Um, I went over there partly because I didn't want to come back to England. I was very bored of England and um, wanted to expand my horizons a bit. Um, 
I also was studying Thai boxing, so Bangkok seemed like the best place to do that. And um, so I spent five years out in Bangkok and um, started off teaching unqualified in some rubbish little conversation English language schools. Found out I quite liked the interaction and the teaching and it was a good way of earning enough money to stay in Thailand and do what I wanted to do. So I, I went off and got qualified, came back, um, got a better job, ended up teaching in a university. Um, then I came back to England, took further qualifications, taught in London, went into teacher training, eventually went into academic management um, and ended up running four schools in London. I became a, 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 a moderator for Trinity College London teacher training courses um, and an examiner for, for Cambridge on their English language side, um, assessing foreign students and their, their English language progress. And uh, that, I stayed doing that for best part of 12 years. And what was your transition out of that? Why did you leave that behind and do, I assume, what, you, what you're doing now? Uh, boredom, I think. I, uh, I, uh, I hesitate to say it, but perhaps I... I peaked a little bit too soon in what I was doing. I was an academic director by the time I was 30 um, and was very motivated and I, I, I dare say I was, I was pretty good at it. Um, I was running a good school, good teacher training courses, I had a good team around me, I'd achieved quite a lot um, and so the next few years involved um, you know, keeping that going, you know, for want of a better word, treading water. Mm which after a while, although it was quite well paid and it was a very nice life and I enjoyed the, uh, the environment, um, I didn't really feel stimulated and I started a business um, based on my writing, which was vintageguns.co.uk in the early-ish days of internet businesses, about 2002, 2003, um, set a website up largely to field the, uh, the communication I was getting um, from America and elsewhere on the back of the writing I was doing for the Double Gun Journal, which you may be familiar with. Mm -hmm, yes. Um, so it's an American magazine, a quarterly, high quality, and I was writing three, four, five, six thousand word articles for them, uh, initially on British gun auctions. And um, the American readership in particular picked up on this and started to get in contact and say things like, well, you wrote about this gun in your last article. I want one like that. Can you find me one? Mm. Or they'd say, well, you're going to Holtz, I understand, or Bonhams in their next, for their next auction. This gun's in it. Would you mind looking at it for me and letting me know if it's any good? So quite often I'd go along and I'd look at a gun and I'd send a report back to them and say, uh, it's fine, but it needs X, Y, and Z done to it. And it's, they want to know what it was worth, and I'd advise them as best I could. And then they'd come back and say, well, can you buy it for me? And if it needs all that work, can you get the work done? And then can you export it to America for me? Okay. So this started okay. to build up, um, all running through the, the website that I'd started. And it began to become a business. Um, and it became a tipping point where the business, the, the part-time business, the gun dealing side of it and the writing, started to get in the way of my set sensible job um, and it also, it also coincided with a time where I was perhaps more passionate about the new business than I was about the old one and I came to a crossroads and I thought if I have to work for another 22 years 
because that's what I've been doing up to that point, wouldn't it be nice to actually do something different and take a bit of a risk? Um, because I really had to make a choice at that point to either stop the, the part-time business that was interfering with the sensible job or stop the sensible job. I know, I know, I know those sentiments exactly because that's almost exactly what I've just done. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does take a bit of a jump. But if it's something that you really love, then yeah, which I, I know from from your writing and uh, obviously the business that you do now, it's it might be a business, but it's also a clear passion. Yeah, absolutely. It helps when you get paid to do something you truly, truly love. Mm. It certainly does. I think the only caveat there is. Somebody once said to me, "If you start doing, if you start doing your hobby as a job, you need to get another hobby." <laughs> yes, no, that is that is true. Fishing is my escape from that because I have no commercial involvement in fishing, so I just go fishing for enjoyment. Very good. Yeah. Uh, now I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the the auctions and vintage guns. Uh, I I have I have a, a, ver, a fairly limited knowledge of vintage guns, but a fascination with them. In fact, you're talking about Bonhams. I was actually in the Bonham stand at Schoon Palace this weekend looking at some uh, very nice takedown old Rigby's. For people who have this sort of want to own something old, what would your advice be in terms of going to auctions? Because it's quite a daunting thing. You go there, there's hundreds and hundreds of guns of every spectrum and age. What, what would you say to people who just have that, that want to own a little piece of the past but don't quite know where to start? Well, an auction is probably not the right place to go to start okay it's a good place to go to get an education if you go to auctions the good thing about it is you've got all this stuff that you can pick up you can look at you can take to bits you can examine properly you get a real feeling for how various mechanisms work you start to notice what goes wrong with them you get to notice what is wrong with guns that have got into the auctions um, you start to realise what something should look like and when it looks wrong and then establish why it looks wrong and what's been done to it and what needs to be done about it. Uh, but in short, you know, you, I wouldn't go to a car auction and buy a Land Rover. Mm -hmm. I have a Land Rover. I know what a Land Rover looks like and I drive mine all the time. But I don't know enough about Land Rovers to go to an auction, have a quick look around one and then spend five or six thousand pounds and hope that it's okay. Um, I know enough about people that mess about with Land Rovers to know that quite a lot of these that have got into an auction have gone into an auction for a very good reason. Mm -hmm. Guns are the same. So I would say in an auction, a lot of the stuff that's there is there because the trade have put it into an auction. Yeah, if I put something into an auction, it's because I never want to see it again. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, the reason that dealers put things into auctions they never want to see again is because if they sell it retail and it goes wrong, somebody's going to bring it back and expect you to put it right, and that costs a lot of money. So you put something to an auction, wave goodbye to it, and you will never see it again. Um, the auctioneers sell them as described. So if the description is quite small, it's a 12-bore shotgun with 30-inch barrels. As long as it's a 12-bore shotgun with 30-inch barrels, anything else is fair game. You, know, you pull the trigger on day one, the fore end falls off and the stock breaks in half. Bad luck. Um, whereas you do that retail, you come back and you expect the dealer to put it right. So um, I, I, I have to say, you know, auctions are really where I started my business because I, I, I built the business on going to auctions for people and looking at stuff and, you know, giving them appraisals on the things they were interested in. 
to give them some some confidence that what they were bidding on was actually a bid that they were doing with their eyes open, or in more cases than not, um, deterring people from bidding on something they were thinking of bidding on because there were uh, there were good reasons for avoiding it. Sure. Um, what you don't want to do is go and spend fourteen or fifteen thousand pounds on a gun and then get it, get it home and realise it needs. Five thousand pounds spent on it, and when you spent five thousand pounds on it, it's worth ten thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So, if you're interested in purchasing old guns, go and learn at at, uh, at an auction. But if you're going to buy, until you know what you're looking at, probably go to a, go to somebody who knows more about it than you and who actually sells them as a, as a business. Absolutely, or just use use somebody um, as a sounding board. You know. No, certainly go into these things with your eyes open. Don't go in hoping that nobody else has noticed what you've thought. You know, it's very difficult to get a bargain at an auction mm. because the whole of the gun trade is there. Now, so you can't buy a ten thousand pound Purdy for five thousand pounds because everybody else is too stupid to notice <laughs> and it just fails under the radar. Everybody that knows what they're talking about is there, and if they're not bidding on it, there's probably a good reason. Uh, the other reason, the other thing you see at auctions that people do all the time is, is, and this is an argument that I've heard people use, they say, well, if I bought it at an auction for £10,000, well, the bids were going up in £500 increments. So at the very worst, that gun's worth £9,500 because somebody else bid up to £9,500. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's assuming the person that was bidding against you knows what they were doing. <laughs> and they weren't just as stupid as you and bidding up <laughs> your coattails. Um, which happens all the time. Um, you know, the, the old mantra I use is you can't bid against stupid. Um, and you certainly shouldn't because if I, I've often looked at something um, and, and noted what's wrong with it and had people bidding strongly on it because they hadn't noticed what was wrong with it and were bidding on the assumption that it, wasn't, that it was something other than what it actually was. And I guess that gets other people excited as well if they're seeing, hang on, someone's bidding. Someone else who knows more than me thinks there's some value in the gun. Yeah, Yeah, it can happen. And, of course, you get that buyer's frenzy in an auction house. People forget about the commission, so they bid £10,000 and think it's £10,000, and then they have to write a cheque for £13,000. But that's not in their mind when they're bidding. People are very bad at doing that mental calculation. They get carried away. Um... And then you, I mean, I've, I've quite often found that guns will sometimes make more in an auction than they will in a private sale. Hmm. Um, it, there's something odd about the public that they will bid really strongly at an auction, whereas if you show them a gun and say, look, I've got this gun for sale, it's this much money, they, they won't buy it. I think it's part of the excitement. Yeah. Are there particular sections of the vintage market that are growth areas in terms of investment um i know that there are there have been certain areas of the past where it sort of comes up cyclically where it has been a good uh it has been a good sector to say um invest in uh high-end uh pairs of shotguns like your parodies uh and then it tends to fall off again it, what is what is going on right now that is a, a growth sector for investment if you're looking purely to put your money into guns, partly because you enjoy them, but partly as an investment, where should people be looking? Well, let's start with the first part, guns as investments. 
when people come to me and say, I want to buy a gun as an investment, what should I buy? I say, don't buy guns as investments. Okay. Buy guns because you like them. Now, uh, and, and buy the guns that you like. Now, the worst that can happen if you buy a gun that you like is that the market goes down, the gun becomes worth less than you paid for it, but you're stuck with a gun that you like and can use and enjoy using. Mm -hmm. So the market over the last 20 or 30 years has shown that generally if you buy a good gun in good of good quality and good condition, use it and look after it, um, after five or six years, if you decide to sell it, you'll probably get your money back and you may even make some money on it. But you shouldn't, I don't think, go into it with that in mind because it can go the other way. And I've seen people buy guns uh, and spend a lot of money on them and try and sell them two or three years later and, and lose money. Um, of course, like any investment, this only becomes an issue if you have to sell it when the market's depressed um, if you know the, the state of the market is irrelevant unless until unless and until you come to to sell um, my general advice beyond what I've just given would be buy the best quality you can afford in the best condition you can afford don't go and spend money on a really tired old purdy just because you want to have a purdy mm -hmm. far better off buying a, a, an atkin in much better condition or or a or a lang or or, or something else with, without the, the, the universally known name um because you'll get more more for your money um this also comes down to you know getting the best value of course when it comes to selling brand value is a key part of it it's always easier to sell a purdy than it is to sell anything else a purdy or a boss mm -hmm. um, this is largely because of you know, universal recognition everybody knows where electric watch is um, everybody knows purdy shotguns everybody knows Cohiba cigars um, so there's a certain cachet in having those things although people that really know cigars and really know shotguns and really know watches yeah, will often be found having and using and appreciating other things. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And where your own um, personal fascination within the, the vast spectrum of vintage guns that you deal with, is it is it double rifles? Is that where your sort of heart lies? As a as a, if you had to pick out one particular type of rifle shotgun. Um, from a shooting point of view, I'm a, I'm a shotgunner rather than a rifle shooter. I've I've spent, I spend, have spent, and do spend a lot more time shooting birds than I do shooting animals. Um, and I've spent a long, I've spent, I've shot plenty of animals, but um, but I think you know, bird shooting is my is my go to sport really, and therefore shotguns are really my number one weapon of choice. And the guns that I find I use more than anything else are probably eighteen seventies twelve bore hammer guns. Uh, quite old, quite old-fashioned technology. Typically, with a Jones underlever, maybe rebounding locks. I've got I've got a couple that I use a lot. One's got rebounding, one's got non-rebounding locks. Both made in the 1870s, you know, mid 1870s. Uh, they're bar-action guns uh, by makers of no particular repute. One's by a chap called Jay Thompson, um, and the other one is by um, Thorn. 
um, W. Thorne of the Strand. They're, they're not household names, but they're beautiful guns, and I shoot them up. Um, I've got probably a gun room at the moment, and the ones that I pick up and shoot are not the Purdy 20 bore over and under or the, 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 the boss side-by-side ejector. It's... Um, it's the old, the old stuff. I, I shot for years with an 1889 Purdy side lock ejector, and I ended up selling it because I, would, I found I was leaving it in the cupboard all the time and uh, and taking out the old hammer guns. And I've shot them all over the world, um, and and I, I actually prefer them to anything else. It's not an affectation. I don't think that I'm, um, I don't think that I'm stringing myself by using old guns. I actually think they they work better if you understand them and know how to use. Well, in terms of um, the absolute mechanical wizardry that's involved in putting something together, I think that there's nothing that betters uh, an 1870s or 1880s Black Powder Express double hammer rifle. I think the way that they're made and I think the, um, the, the materials, the understanding of proportion, the, uh, the gun-making skills that went into building and regulating um, and finishing those weapons were just—I just don't think the workmanship's ever been bettered. Mm. Um, you can still buy one for about yeah under five thousand pounds with a lot of original finish on it in very good condition. And I just don't think there's—I don't think for, in terms of quality um, and history, uh, there's a mechanical object that you can buy that compares. Yeah, they are. There is there is also something about them that is kind of hard to put into words in terms of using them that can't really be uh, can't really be compared with anything else. I quite yeah, I, I've never I, I have I've shot I've shot plenty of them and they're they're beautiful. I've never hunted anything with one. Um, I mean, I've hunted with double rifles. I was in Tanzania last year and um, I hunted buffalo with a brand new Wesley Richards five seven seven double, which was fabulous. Um, for me, that really cemented the uh, the debate between you know calibers for big game hunting and uh and the way that big game hunting can be um can be conducted uh for me you know, the hunting of dangerous game the point of it is that it's dangerous and that means you need to get close to it there's nothing very dangerous about a buffalo at 80 yards being shot off sticks with a scope rifle um, but when you're 15 yards away in long grass and you're trying to get close enough to it to shoot it with open sights, then uh, that certainly gets the uh, concentration going and uh, gets the blood pumping and, um, and puts you, you know, on better terms with, with the animal that you're hunting. And I think that's really what it's about for me. And when you're, you know, 12 or 15 yards away from a, a, a rather ugly looking buffalo that could um, spoil your day if things go wrong um, you really want, want horsepower mm. and, mm. Uh, and a short barrel 577 delivers plenty of horsepower <laughs> yeah for sure I, I have to say it's, it's one caliber I haven't had the I was going to say pleasure of shooting although I'm not quite sure how much pleasure there would be in shooting it a lot maybe hunting with it but maybe not shooting with it on the range yeah, well, it's a bit of a fallacy um, what people talk about when, when it's um, when it, where it concerns powerful cartridges. If the gun's properly built and it's it fits you um, correctly, and the weight of the of the rifle match the ammunition, and the proportions are correct, 
it's not uncomfortable to shoot. I mean, it's no more uncomfortable than shooting a 12 bore shotgun. Um, I think you're right. If you're sitting on a if you're if you're on a range and you're firing shot after shot after shot, um, or if you make the mistake of trying to fire heavy rifles from a bench rest, mm -hmm. um, particularly a sitting bench rest, then you're asking for trouble. Uh, but out uh, once these things are regulated, it's uh, it's a it, you shoot them very much like a shotgun, open sights. Um, but really, you're you're concentrating on your quarry and you're you're shooting it quickly, yeah. um, and it should all be fairly instinctive. Yeah, there's a, there is a big difference between uh, what you might. I, I never know whether it's uh, what you perceive as uh, the the recoil and impact of it when you're shooting, compared to when you're hunting. But it is a it is a totally different affair, and you you can cope with a lot more when you're actually hunting. I think probably part of it's to do with you're in the moment, the adrenaline's up slightly, and uh, it's the last yeah. thing on D your mind. D different really. environment completely, isn't exactly. it? It is, yeah. But I think also when you're shooting a, a large rifle from a standing position, um, your body absorbs the recoil and your body moves with the recoil. When you're, when you're at a bench rest or when you're at a standing rest, um, the tendency is to, um, to, to lean into it and to become more static. Um, I think, you know, going back to my martial arts, the idea that you, you, you bend like a bamboo. And I think you do that when you're shooting a big rifle, you know. And I, I'm not very heavy. I'm, I'm six feet tall. I weigh about 180. Kilo, uh, sorry, about uh, about 80, 80 kilos, 82 kilos. Um, so I'm not I'm not a heavy guy, but I've never suffered from recoil. And I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that um, you know you move with the recoil. You 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 accept. It rather than just absorb it like a punch. Yeah, it's it's actually a very important point to point that out to people if they're shooting it for the first time. I had a a 470 Nitro Heim uh, on test uh, a year ago or something, and uh, I took it up to where I do all my rifle testing. And there's a, f a few gamekeepers up there who are friends of mine. I said, hey, guys, if you want to come down, not often you get a chance to shoot something like this. Come and I'll, I'll let you have a, a shot or two shots if you really want. And uh, that was the first thing I said to him. I said, "I don't try and don't try and take this. Just let it, let your body roll with it when you pull the trigger." And everybody listened, apart from my one friend Adam, who stood, sort of bent over <laughs> it a little bit, clearly expecting it and waiting to sort of fight the recoil. And yeah, he suffered for that big time. Yeah, I think it's if you watch other people do it first as well, it doesn't help. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but out the, and out in the field, you know when. When you're uh, you're concentrating on something big and nasty looking, you certainly don't even notice the, the recoil. No, no, certainly. Now I, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the hunting of big game, but it kind of takes us into the Pierce Morgan interview. So I want to deal with that first, and then we'll we'll take that, extrapolate that out, and talk about big game hunting a bit more. So for those okay. people who didn't see it, uh, we're actually we'll put the link up so people can go and watch it because I think it is on on YouTube. Let's talk to Diggory Haydoke, who has taken part in big game hunts and says Prince William might have the right idea when it comes to shooting animals for conservation. Do you know anything about that? Incentives for tracking down, I mean, tracking down the poachers, yeah, but shooting them? A lot of African countries have a shoot-on-site policy for poachers. Really? Mm. And does it do anything to stop the poaching? Well, there's a money incentive. The problem with a lot of African countries in particular is that the poaching is paid for by Chinese and Vietnamese organized international criminals and 
underpinned by endemic government corruption, which runs right through a lot of African societies. So although a lot of um, areas that are managed for, for, for hunting or that are managed for wildlife um, are doing their best to try and combat the poaching, poaching is a huge problem. Prince yeah. William's absolutely okay, right. Let's get into trophy hunting, right? You think William has a point in saying it plays an important part in conservation. I think it's like a fox saying, let me look after the hens. Right? It, you can't be both. I, I find it repulsive when I see these big corpulent American tycoons coming over, blasting at rhinos and then posing for their lovely pictures and stuffing their heads up on office walls. Why should I not feel it's repulsive? Well, Piers, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come and talk about this because what you've just summed up is a, a typical tabloid approach to what is actually... No, no, let really? me, do, you want, do you want me to answer your question? Well, or would you like to carry on? No, I'm, I'm ready to answer your question. It's not a tabloid view. It's a very widely held view by people who read all newspapers. It's, a, it's an uninformed view which doesn't take into account the key thing, which is in areas which are managed for hunting, there are far more animals than there are in areas which are not managed for hunting. Mm -hmm. That is a verifiable fact. Now, hunting it's may not be to everybody's taste, but it works for, for conservation. Right, it is also a verifiable fact that there is massively higher revenue to be drawn from tourists going to these reserves and watching animals in their natural habitat. There are also far more humane ways of disposing of elderly or dying animals than letting some corpulent American come over with his little howitzer, blow their brains out and pose for his trophy pictures. Again, you're, you're stooping to tabloid language, it's if you'll forgive me. It's not tabloid language, Shoot, it's a reality. Shooting people with a, things with a howitzer. How much, how much research have you done well, on this? Well, let me, let, me, let me talk about Cecil the lion. Hmm. For example, where they lured this old lion out of the reserve to an illegal area so this American called Walter, a dentist, could blast it dead and put it on his dental wall. Now, I say that is completely unacceptable, and I don't like our future king, uh, who's supposed to be so aligned to conservation and helping to save animals, actually endorsing that kind of trophy hunting. You don't seem to be able to get over your emotional distaste for hunting, which you're very entitled no, no, to. hunting's one thing. But Trophy the... hunting is a very different thing. Mm. That's about people posing for these sickening pictures mm. and putting these horrible things on their... The, the severed heads of their prey onto their walls. Again, very That's what I'm talking a about. A very sensationalist focus on a very small part of the conservation and management of, of, for example, lions. In areas in Botswana, where lion hunting used to take place, there were... There was money. A small village in, on the edge of the Okavango Delta would get $600,000 for the taking of 120 animals, not all, not all lions, mm. various animals, in one year. That paid for 20 standpipes, 20 toilets for people who don't have toilets. This money comes directly from hunting revenue. And in those areas, lion numbers are stable because the so locals more, don't poison them, they that. don't kill them. OK, just to clarify, you want more people like Walter the dentist well, hang on, we just to saw, come we over... We just saw a photograph of you, Diggory, actually, I think, with one of your trophies. Well, I, I can't yeah. see that. Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an see, old, old buffalo. Why yeah. would you take pride in posing with your big buffalo that you've killed? Well, a fo the photograph is... The, I've got a photograph of me with my rugby team posing with a football. It's part of... It's well, the culmination you're, you're of what we do. A, a sports photograph with a dead... 
buffalo, I, right? I, which I, you're proudly standing next to, so you can put it on your wall. That was the culmination of three... And you call me a tabloid yeah, sensation. Yes, you are. That was, wow. That was... I'll answer your question. Wow. That was me going hunting. I looked my prey in the eye, I shot it, I ate it, and I took a photograph. The photograph was a tiny part of me being on the ground, interacting mm. with animals. And the money that was paid by that paid for local jobs, it paid for the game scouts that accompany every hunt, which are looking to track down poachers, and this is what is active conservation okay. on the ground. Unfortunately, and animals in those areas are far more prolific yeah, than they I'm are in non-hunting areas. Look, hunting is one thing. Humane hunting and, and taking down animals that are about to die, that's another thing. Okay. Posing for those kind of pictures Much and encouraging people to come over for big sums of money to go and put the heads on their office walls is so you hurt. don't mind hunting, you just don't like photography. Okay. I don't like photography or I the trophy. To, the trophy element of it is what repulses you people. You need to move and away from the emotional arguments. It is emotional. And I'm afraid I have to intervene because oh, otherwise we're not going to get to fine. the rest of the inter fine. stuff fine. on the programme. Let me finish. When I see <laughs> a severed head of a lion on an American dentist's wall, I get emotional about it. And the fact that you don't says more about you no, than it does about me. I, I get, people, hunters get very emotionally involved with their prey, far more emotionally involved than you get with the steak that you eat that you're quite happy for somebody okay. else to slaughter for you. I have to stop you two big beasts butting heads here. Diggory, good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Lorraine, let's get Lorraine and calm things down. She's always a soothing voice oh, in Thank times you. of crisis. Thank you, Pearson. Good on you, because I just, I actually don't understand why anybody would want to shoot and kill an animal like that. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't compute at all. Talk me through that day, why you were there in the first place, how you ended up getting the invite, and then through that interview with uh, Pierce Morgan, who uh, it was largely a clown through most of it, uh, but explain it in your, in your own words <laughs> from sitting in that sofa on TV. Well, the preamble to it was interesting that they they got in touch with um, they got in touch via a friend. Um, they were looking for somebody to come on and talk about what have, as they put it, big game hunting um, and the conservation issues um, and how big game hunting contributes to conservation. It was on the back of um, something that Prince William had said, I think, to David Dimbleby earlier in the, that month, where he'd said that um, properly organised, managed game big game hunting had a role in conservation. Mm -hmm. And of course, that sort of sent sent the Twitter storm off of um, people assuming that that was a terrible thing to say, and that um, you know, the, the, in the the mind of the public at large, who don't really look into things and act on emotion, instinct, whatever you want to put it, but certainly not on evidence. Um, they they assume that you know, killing big animals is an awful e evil. Th to do because they're all endangered and when you kill one that's one less and um and that's bad and it's as simple as that mm -hmm. which of course it isn't um so they wanted somebody to come on and talk um and the discussion was around you know prince william has said this is he right or wrong so uh i was briefed a little bit beforehand about what to expect and piers morgan's people asked me to send some photographs so I sent some photographs of me playing with baby lion cubs and I sent some photographs of me sitting in the bush with a rifle and I sent some photographs of me walking in the bush with a rifle um, and some various other photographs and they said thank you very much and then a 
little bit later, they said, oh, could we have some photographs of you with dead animals? <laughs> Which I, did, I deliberately not sent because um, I, I, I felt it was perhaps going to be a, a, either, you know, not appropriate or, or, or used cynically. So um, I, I did send them a photograph of me with a buffalo that I'd shot. Um, which, of course, was interesting later on because the whole thrust of Piers Morgan's outrage was that he couldn't stand the idea of people taking photographs of themselves with dead animals and making him look at them. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd spent quite a lot of time in making sure that I sent him one of these photographs so that he could get outraged about it on television, uh, which really just shows the hypocrisy of them. Um, but uh, anyway, cut a long story short, I ended up in the um, ended up in the TV studio. The the people that, that had briefed me before it came down with a load of questions, and they said this is pre pretty much what what peers will ask you. And it was uh, it was about you know how does hunting help conservation, and what do your friends think of your hobby, and so on and so forth. All fairly innocuous. Of course, when I sat down with him, it, that wasn't the case at all. He very much went on the attack. Um, he wasn't interested in hearing a defence of trophy hunting or any facts about how managed trophy hunting concessions actually work to sustain and grow populations of endangered animals. Um, I mean, some of the language he used was laughable. I mean, he he one point referred to, you know, corpulent Americans blasting rhinos with howitzers. I did laugh at that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was, he clearly wasn't prepared and he, he wasn't working from any basis of research. He was purely venting <laughs> um, his own, his own miss, you know, his, his own ignorant point of view, really. And it's a shame because Piers Morgan is not a stupid man. Um, whatever one might think of his, of him um, in, in other respects, he's, he's, he's not stupid. Um, he's certainly got the mental capacity to research these things properly. Um, so, you know, although we can't really call into question his intelligence, I think we can call into question his integrity. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I, I talked talk to a couple of people in the media before I went on and they said, look, you know, Piers Morgan's not interested in the truth. He's just interested in promoting Piers Morgan. And to the man's credit, I mean, he promoted Piers Morgan quite well through this. I mean, yeah, Twitter, Twitter lit up and you know the great unwashed were all quite happy to jump on there saying what a great job Piers had done of making the uh, awful horrible trophy hunter look like an idiot um, which just goes to show that you know the uh, the outcome of a discussion is very much in the eye of the beholder um, because the, the 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 people who were involved in hunting and conservation who saw that um, felt that I'd managed to put a, across the point um, you know reasonably well under difficult circumstances um, whereas people who feel that trophy hunting is evil and terrible and don't want to hear anything else about it thought Piers had done a good job of giving me a kicking. Yeah, I would, I would say that, uh, especially when that wasn't even what it was about, it wasn't about giving you a kicking, it was there for you to actually explain what, what was going on. Yeah, what, what the truth no, is. I think I was there for Piers to give me a kick. Well, yeah. The delight of his, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it, it became quite clear by the way that he conducted the interview that he just wanted to sit somebody on the end of the sofa and, and shout his moral outrage at them. Mm. Yeah, no, I, 
it was very clear watching the interview that that was exactly his intention. And it was, as you say, it, it was a real shame because it was, a, it was a great opportunity to actually have a proper level-headed debate and discussion. But unfortunately, he very, very clearly had done zero research for that. And if he had done uh, any research at all, then he clearly didn't use any of it. And it was just a venting exercise. And No, that's absolutely right. And it is a shame because it's not often that we get to put something like this on a public platform in front of the, the, the general public and educate them about the reality of what's going on here. And of course, you know, I wasn't there to, to, um, to defend bad practice. Um, you know, and we have to admit that within trophy hunting, within hunting, within, um, within any walk of life, there's, there's good practice, there's bad practice, and there's best practice. Um, and what I was there to try to promote was best practice. Um, yet, as is often the case in these debates, you know, they will pick out the what they consider the worst practice and tar everybody with the same brushes if that's representative of of all of us. Um, and of course it's not. Um, I mean, scratching the surface behind what he was talking about, the particular conservancy where the lion that they all decided to call Cecil yep. um, came from, you know, 30 years ago, that was just a cattle, a, a, a series of cattle stations with hardly any lions on it at all. Um, before it was taken on as a hunting concession, the cattle were driven out, and um, and and uh, the the hunting operations started to control it. You know, the, um, the the lion population on that land um, went up from eight to close to 500. Mm -hmm. Cecil was just one of those 500 lions. Um, which happened to be shot, um, and the circumstances un under which that particular lion was shot may or may not have been um, ideal. It turned out that the um, the chap, D Dr. Palmer, the chap that shot him, um, actually had all the necessary licenses. The Zimbabwean government, if you read up on it, have said that he's very welcome to come back to Zimbabwe anytime he likes. He's not facing any charges, and that his paperwork was in order. Uh, you probably won't read that in any of the UK newspapers because it doesn't fit the narrative. Um, but of course, you know, we're, we're struggling with this because the, the general public really don't want to go beyond the um, the simplistic notion that if an animal is endangered, it's endangered everywhere, and that killing one is bad. Mm. Um, that there's of course a lot more nuanced argument there's a, a lot more going on on the ground in conservation um, that requires understanding and study and attention paying to it and quite a lot of it is counterintuitive um, and people of course are very reluctant to learn that their opinion is is ignorant and and, and based on fallacy um, you know, we we as a, as a human as humanity, I suppose, are, are prone to this. I mean, most people buy a newspaper that tells them what they already think and reflects their own prejudices back to them and their own uh, their own narrative back to them, and they don't go and buy newspapers that challenge them because they don't like that. And I think this is what we face with with, with hunting and conservation: the sort of the Peter the narrative, the the um, the. the the simplistic narrative is the one that people most easily pick up and as as ascribe themselves to. It's the easy one, isn't it? It doesn't require any hard work. No, and 
and the sad thing is that the the list of examples like you you just gave that particular conservancy uh there is numbers in there for the increase in population of elephant in fact that conservancy uh, that you're referencing there and is related to where Cecil was shot is mentioned in the IUCN report on trophy hunting and shows it as an example of what hunting and hunting can do for conservation in an area such as that. And the list of examples like that is long. And you only have to That's look right. at Kenya for exactly what happens when you don't have hunting in a country. But a lot of people, just as you've said, I don't know whether they don't want to hear it or they just don't take the time to understand it. It, it, is, it is very frustrating that we don't have uh, a good platform, and it is largely due to a biased media, and that's probably why we're having this conversation right now, <laughs> that, that this information can't be disseminated out and people can make a judgment for themselves. Because it is there. The information is there to, to be seen. But I it's just, not necessarily it's, accessible. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. But uh, yeah, we live in a situation at the moment where... Even if you look at something like uh, Country File on the BBC, you know, if which is which is very much an urban-based view of the countryside. You know, it's the countryside presented as a playground for urban people to go and look at things and 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 and, and, and ooh and ah about things. They they don't want to see the nitty gritty of the countryside. That it's actually a, a living, breathing. Um, working environment in which life and death go on around them. They they want a chocolate box idea of what the countryside is like. And any time they come anywhere near showing gamekeeping in a good light, the, the benefits of of, of managing um, predators, the benefits of managing moorland for game shoot for game shooting for grass shooting, they get inundated with outraged emails and texts from the public um, demanding that they not show these barbarous activities in a good light. Mm. Um, and, you know, they're ratings driven. And um, we live in an, in, in an environment now where if, the tw if there's a, Twitter, a negative Twitter storm about something, then everybody runs for the hills. I guess a prime example is that Country File did a piece on gamekeeping and they were actually um, butchering a deer, I think it was. Uh, this is probably three, four months back now. And they had a huge amount of people on Twitter complaining because they were disgusted in the fact that a deer was being butchered. I didn't see the thousands of Twitter messages of the morning cooking show when they were cutting uh, cutting meat up and then and then cooking it with all people laughing around it. It's the same difference. Well, absolutely. But unfortunately, you know, the the uneducated have never been shy about um, about expressing their opinions. <laughs> what is your view? The one thing that gets criticised a lot, and it, it's it's the easy pickings for social media for the likes of Ricky Gervais. You take um, there was the fact there was that Channel Four program on only a few days ago. The woman uh, who hunt, women who hunt lions, lions yeah. or something, yeah. And that was all sparked. I saw that. Yeah, I don't actually have a television, but I did make a point of watching that because a friend of mine warned me that it was coming up, so I actually made a made a trip over to someone else's house and watched it. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I, I I let Byron watch it. I didn't watch it because uh, I'm a bit like you. I don't have a TV either, so if it's on live TV, I don't I don't see it. So yeah, my my question with regard to that, and we can actually talk about the program since uh, you did watch it, is that the reason why that all started really if you boil it down, was pictures posted on social media. So the, the one picture for the one lady whose name I forget is of her lying down beside a dead giraffe. 
I mean, what is your view on on that particular aspect of it? The, the picture taking of yourself beside big game or any game for that matter, which then gets picked up and run with in, in social media. And then you can maybe talk about the circumstances around that particular uh, very poorly made documentary. <laughs> I don't even want to call it a documentary, actually. Yeah. It was a piece of wallpaper television. Uh, it was very, it was very lowbrow and rather poorly done, just to fit in a, a half-hour slot or whatever it was. But um, I uh, let's start with the um, with the question of taking photographs with with animals that you've shot. I think that's um, something which is often the first point of revulsion for a lot of people. They say, you know, why do you go out and shoot these animals so you can have your photographs taken with them? Um, and to, to a certain degree, this is one of the reasons I'm not particularly enamoured of the term trophy hunting, because I think if you use the word trophy hunting, it suggests that the only point is the trophy. Um, that, you know, in a way you're going out shopping for a set of horns or a skull or, or a rug. And, that yeah, the, the going to the country, kitting yourself out, getting fit, preparing yourself, learning how to shoot, um, learning how to shoot in difficult conditions, learning how to shoot when you're tired, when you've been tracking something for hours, uh, learning to read the signs, learning to read how animals behave and how they react so that when the time comes to take a shot, you don't mess it up, are all incidental things of no consequence that all you're really motivated by is the collection of this particular trophy. Um, whether it be a photograph, whether it be a part of the animal. Where, of course, anybody who's ever been involved in it knows that the trophy itself is only a very small part of it. It's a, it's a memento of the whole experience from you know deciding where you're going to go and what you're going to hunt to going through all the preparation necessary, both um, physically, mentally and um, equipment-wise, um, in order to make that happen. Um, it's the interaction with the environment, with the animals, um, with the possibility of failure, with the stress, with the responsibility, all of that being successfully negotiated leads you up to that point where it's over. The animal's on the ground. Everything's hopefully gone according to plan and you're now at the end of that journey. And I think as human beings, we, we often like to, um, to record things like this. You know, there are millions of fishermen in the UK who catch a fish and take a photograph of themselves holding the fish. Uh, we don't seem to, you know, the, the public at large don't seem to think there's anything weird about that. Mm. Um, you know, when I, I mentioned on Piers Morgan's show, you know, the, the rugby, rugby team photographs I've got of me with my rugby team with various things that we've done. Um, they are snapshots of an important moment in your life. Um, in terms of the trophy heads that people take, whether it's taxidermy, whether it's a set of horns, again, it's a memento of that entire experience. And you can sit there in your, in your office or in your study and you see those horns up on your wall and it takes you back to a time um, when you were perhaps younger and fitter and more able and in a place where you aren't anymore in a place which has changed since you were there with people that you know you 
came to respect and know and understand who you are no longer with or in some cases are no longer with us and it takes you back there and that's always going to serve as a memento of that part of your life and how you interacted with that particular environment that particular um, challenge and how it culminated in picking up this particular animal yeah it's a very difficult thing to explain to people who have never done it or or experienced it and i wondered how you would put it um to people ignorant or uneducated in what it means to to hunt anything hunt full stop of why it's still relevant in the modern world why why do we need to do this and especially when there are undoubtedly uh, circumstances where there are people who their only desire is to go and stick a head on their wall. They don't really care about everything else that goes into it. In fact, that, that f- the film on, on Channel 4, the one uh, girl there who was in, from uh, Canadian creation, I kind of got the impression that she was really just a collector of stuff on her wall more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, it's, I find it difficult to talk about other people's motivation. And as I said to you before, you know, I'm certainly not somebody who's going to stand up here and defend what I consider bad practice. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to condemning other people's behavior or, you know, judging whose motivation is good and whose motivation is bad, I think you can quite often get onto very sticky ground. Um, I would say... You know, going back to your first question, you know, what is it? What? Why do we need to hunt? Well, we don't need to hunt, but there are a lot of things that we, as modern mammal, as you know, as as modern citizens, don't need to do. You know, we don't need to fight. Generally, we don't need to defend ourselves. We have a police force and an army that does that. Um, yet, some people want to be able to fight and some people want to fight. I mean, we study martial arts, we'll study boxing because it teaches us things about ourselves. It puts us into places where otherwise we wouldn't necessarily necessarily ever be and we test ourselves under those circumstances. We test ourselves physically, we test ourselves in terms of our courage, our mentality, our stability um, and we learn about ourselves by tapping into those deep-rooted parts of our ourselves uh, which 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 help us to become human um, I think for some people they want you know we, we feel we want to maintain a connection with the more elemental parts of our nature fighting might be one of those I, I mean I've studied martial arts for a lot of my life and uh, and it's not because I want to go and punch people in the face in fact the more that you study martial arts and the more capable you get the less inclined you are to hit anybody and, in, and paradoxically, the less likely as well. Um, in terms of hunting, you know, to be able to go out into nature and feel at home with it, to be able to go out and pursue quarry, whether it's dangerous quarry or whether it's edible quarry or both, um, on its own terms, in its own environment, using relatively primitive tools. I mean, I don't go and hunt big game with telescopic sights. I use open sights. Um, I tend to use pretty rudimentary equipment. And people have said to me, you know, how dangerous can it be? You know, you're standing there looking at an elephant or a buffalo and blasting it with an enormous rifle. It must be the easiest thing in the world. Well, of course, you know, yeah, 
connecting with part of an elephant or part of a buffalo at 20 yards with a big rifle, as long as you're reasonably competent in its use, isn't very difficult. Hitting it in the right place so that it dies and doesn't come and tread on you or squash you is a little bit more difficult, especially when you throw in all the conditions, um, you know, visibility, terrain, not quite knowing when you're going to get the chance for a shot, um, choosing the right moment to take it, choosing the right place to take it, uh, making sure your nerve holds, making sure that you don't flinch, making sure that you know all your skills are, are where they need to be. Um, this is teaching you about yourself and about nature in the raw. Mm-hmm. Um, so, from th- those are all, in, you know, those are all parts of it for me. I mean, taking it further, you know, I like hunting animals and I like eating the animals that I hunt. Um, I don't think anybody could legitimately argue that it's more humane to, uh, to put it, breed a chicken in a chicken farm in the dark, injected with steroids and fed on rapid growth hormones, um, and then you know, industrially kill it after three months and process it so that we have cheap chicken. Um, and then say that to go out and shoot a, a, a pheasant that, which is free roaming and able to take its chances in the natural world um, and get shot and eaten, you know, I think the the, uh, the, the simple test of that is, you know, you're, you, you're going to be reincarnated. You know, pick which animal you'd like to be. Yeah, that's a, that's a fairly easy answer there. Yeah. And it, it's very difficult to try and explain to uh, to the public who don't do it all that you, you've done. Well, you've done a very good job of explaining how important everything is and and what what is involved as a hunter, out with actually pulling the trigger. It is a lot easier to explain it from a, a point of view of food and uh, the, the ethics of taking wild game as opposed to. Uh, I'm not saying that there's an issue with all farmed food, but and the example that you just gave there with chickens, that's something that happens the world over in probably every country. Uh, but that and combined with the conservation aspect of it, which we're getting better at telling that story, but historically we haven't been very good. And it's never more true than in a continent like like Africa. Where that's that's true, but it's also true of England. If you look at the English countryside, I mean, I think most people sitting on a train and and and, and going through the English countryside and looking out of the window, they 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 may or they may not notice, you know, hills with woods on the top of them, gullies with woods on the sides of them, bracken banks, um, dingles, and places which are which are left quite wild. Now. I, I wonder how often they think, well, we live in an agricultural environment. Why do the farmers not just plant crops on all of that land? Why do they not strip it right down to the water's edge and, and graze animals or plant crops on every available square inch? Well, the answer largely and historically is because has been because of shooting and hunting. These areas would be would be left as preserves for wild animals to thrive and to survive, um, to provide a huntable surplus. Uh, without those, um, mo- without that hunting motivation and the um, and the value that hunters place on wild animals and their continuance, uh, we simply have taken the um, 
the, the, the avenue that a lot of countries did where you see monoculture agriculture going on with absolutely nothing left apart from um, you know horizon to horizon agricultural industry going on yeah that's often um and you you see it online all the time the number one argument that you have for the the anti-organizations for the the grouse moors and stock grouse shooting is that they're a monoculture up on the the grouse moors which probably couldn't be furthest from the truth if you actually step on them absolutely yeah it, uh, but again that's very much a piece of opportunism by george Monbiot, i think <laughs> whereby uh, yeah, he saw a little bit of a, of a of a of a downstream issue with flooding, and then quite um, cynically decided to to write a very um, misinformation providing piece, suggesting that the management of grouse moors was responsible for um, for, for flooding further down. Um, and this, of course, comes back to the problem that you know a lot of the time we're not dealing with honest brokers. We're not dealing with people who want to look at. Um, add information and um, and make up their minds based on that. They want to. They have a narrative and they pick and choose information and make things up which support their narrative, and ignore everything else. I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson, the American presenter, recently uh, um, said something along the lines of um, somebody who's inquisitive um, will uh, will 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 seek will will seek um, will question and then seek evidence to verify the answers whereas somebody who's a denier will um will question and then ignore the evidence in order to maintain their own stance and i think we 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 increasingly face that um that people are not interested in the truth you know people talk about post truth politics and donald trump um, we had Michael Gove recently saying, I think that yeah, the British people have had enough of experts. There's, a, there's an anti-intellectualism that's going on in the country, I think, at the moment, and in the world at large. And I think a lot of it is fed by the idea that people bring up their little darlings on, that everybody's opinion is as valid as everybody else's. Well, I'm sorry, you know, your ignorant opinion is not as valid as my informed opinion. Hmm. Um, and I'd apply that to myself on objects on, on matters of which I'm, I'm uninformed or, or lack expertise. When it comes to economics, I defer to my friends um, who've got, you know, um, work backgrounds and academic backgrounds in economics. Um, because to me, you know, some of the stuff that I think is intuitive is wrong. And we find, and I find that a lot when I'm combating people who simply aren't intellectually curious or intellectually honest enough um, to change their minds when faced with overwhelming evidence. Uh, I think that's compounded by the age that we live in where it's so easy to pass judgment, pass comment and fling it online for the world to see without really having any repercussion because you're not having a face-to-face -face conversation with someone and you can completely ignore the counter-argument. Uh, and I guess you'll, yeah. you'll know firsthand from this after your Pierce Morgan experience of, of the comments and emails you received of uh, the days after. 
Oh yeah, uh, I believe that you have a, a couple of those prepared for us now. When we when, when we put this out, we will uh, put a beep in because I know that uh, there might be a few things that uh, <laughs> we, we might just have to censor slightly. But feel free to read them as they came out, just as a, a taster of the kind of people who uh, uh, the kind of the kind of people and how they react to the very level-headed dis- discussion that you were trying to have on that television program. Yeah, um, I did get quite a lot of quite interesting um, emails and tweets in particular from... uh, I would love to see how far you get trying to hunt non-human animals without a gun. Uh, Maybe just try not to enjoy the killing so much, yeah? Why not just give £3,000 to them and not kill a buffalo? I rarely kill after giving to charity. Hunting lions is not sustainable. This one's from Chris Davis. So, you think killing a defenceless animal for pleasure is helping wildlife conservation? What a f***ing moronic thing to say. Say it as it is, you kill animals. Go big game hunting for pleasure. So, what is your answer for so many animals going extinct? Or nearly going extinct? Oh yeah, that's right. Because of selfish like you. I really hope you get a terminal illness and die, you Or better still, let's meet up so I can smash your face in. Thank you, Chris. Very helpful. This one's from Roy Sevier. Great interview on GMTV this morning. I think you may become the number one hated person in the UK by the end of the week after that. Must be epic killing majestic beasts to stroke your ego, wanker. And here's another from Cherilyn Haber. If we can kill you ourselves in America, we will, you f- And we will see who's the bigger person when you f- with someone your own size, instead of being such a tiny dick. What was wrong with your f- mother? to raise such a scumbag like you. Anyway, was she born with brain damage? Go the f*** away, you disgrace of a human. I will pray for you the day you meet your maker. Hopefully, it will be soon. Thank you, Sherilyn. And Fiona Franklin. Diggory, the ugly, evil scum hunter. Hope one of them gores you one of these days, your evil scum. Liam Parker. Nice work today on Good Morning Britain, trying to justify game hunting. You're the lowest form of scum. If you want to hunt game, why don't you use your hands to wound and kill them, rather than a powerful shotgun? You f***ing idiot. A nice pithy one here from Matty Tongue. Absolute scumbag. Die. That's, um, those are, that's the, the choicest of them all. I think there's, you know, there's a there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of those statements in there which you see time and time yeah. and time again. Like, the, I mean, the, the classic one, which is a, an ignorance to how the world actually works, is why do you not just give the money instead of going to hunt it? Well, if that was the case, there are plenty of other people in this world uh, who can go and buy animals and they don't. 
and it's the hunters who are going and they are experiencing that all-encompassing experience that you were talking about about half an hour ago which are who are putting the money into these areas and into these conservancies and the spin-off of that is the the anti-poaching they are picking up snares and all the uh, snares and all the metal work that is put down and is in fact the real danger for in particular africa with regard to poaching i mean ricky gervais is a prime yeah. prime example he has a huge amount of money and I would say, I mean, I don't know 100%, but I know that he has good ties with the League Against Cruel Sports, so I imagine any uh, money that he is giving is probably going into them. Well, Ricky Gervais is an interesting case in point, and I think, it just, again, it shows the intellectual dishonesty um, and lack of curiosity among even, again, intelligent people. Ricky Gervais is an intelligent and relatively sophisticated human being. Um, when, when you watch Ricky Gervais talking on religion, he makes absolute sense. He applies his faculties to the, to the question of religion and its basic absurdity, um, and he tackles it and he tells it like it is. And he's lucid and difficult to argue with, unless you're blinkered, as the religious, of course, are. And they will argue from a religious standpoint. And I think what Ricky Gervais does when it comes to... His, his, his ideas about animals and his ideas about hunting, um, what he does is akin to the religious argument for religion. Um, he, he uses evidence, reason, argument um, to combat religious dogma, yet he ignores those same valid criteria when it comes to considering his own position towards the hunting of animals. Um, it's a complete disconnect, and it's a it, it's a it's a blind spot that he seems to deliberately, or perhaps unconsciously, is unable to um to to tackle, despite his his clear intelligence and his proven ability to do that on on other subjects. Would you say that people like Ricky Gervais, as a few other famous characters as well, do more damage to conservation by doing what they're doing? Well, I don't know what else Ricky Gervais does. I mean, my, you know, where he comes onto my radar is, as you say, you know, when he's making um, derogatory or negative or combative or rude tweets about, you know, people whose trophy photographs have turned up in his, uh, in in his view. I mean, I don't know if he does anything positive. He, he may very well, so I'm not going to say he doesn't. So I don't know what net contribution is, whether it's a positive one or a negative one. I would say to him, okay, if he and I were sitting together, you know, that if what he's really interested in is the uh, the long-going viability of endangered species, um, then despite the fact that he personally feels squeamish and doesn't understand or appreciate the, the motives um, of hunters, um, there's a lot more that in common between um, a, an ethical, conservation-minded hunter um, and him than he probably appreciates, or would maybe want to believe. Yeah, yeah. I I think that one of the great uh, one of uh, the great battles that we face 
is this constant blurring of the line of the lines between uh, poaching and hunting and people just tend to assume especially when you're talking about the the big animals of this planet your your elephants and the you know majestic lions is that they are becoming extinct because they are being hunted yes they are being hunted but they are being hunted by poachers and that is the reason this is a, this is a really good point and i think you're you're absolutely right and it's one of the things i tried to was intending to try and get across to peers the difference between hunting and poaching and i think um I think the I forget her name the the woman that's on the sofa with Piers Susanna, Susanna Reed, Reed. she um she said while they were playing the um the the the, the footage of Prince William and Kate Middleton in um, in India um she uh, at the uh, at the Tiger Reserve she said oh they've got um they've got guards there who are protecting the tigers from from poachers and trophy hunters <laughs> well. There we have it in a nutshell, you know, that assumption that trophy hunters like poachers are these shady characters operating illegally um, to the detriment of everything they come into contact with. And of course, the the difference between a trophy hunter and a, and a, and a poacher or, or, or any ethical hunter and a poacher is quite clear. And a will go to any given area and kill everything they can possibly kill in any way available to them as quickly as possible in order to maximize the amount of money they make from proceeds in the shortest possible time, either before they have to leave or before they get caught. They have no interest in the future of the, uh, of the place that they're hunting or the animals that they're hunting, whereas a, a hunter will go and hunt a particular animal, a designated animal or a designated type of animal in an area which it's been scientifically uh, studied to show how many animals can be taken off uh, sustainably, which animals should be taken off and when and how, and we'll hunt them in an ethical way with a, a possibility and an acceptance of the possibility of failure um, for for, for reasons which are, you know, I think justifiable, but also in terms of the impact that they have, um, they are totally sustainable. Um, if we have a, an environment in which managed hunting is a part of the conservation plan, that environment is safe in perpetuity. Mm. If we have an area which is not managed and in which poaching is allowed to carry on, what we end up with is utterly degraded habitat with, um, with no animals on and there are numerous case studies that show that to be entirely the case. Yeah, it's a it's a very sad sad state of affairs what is happening um, well across across the planet, but particularly in Africa right now with regard to the the ivory uh, ivory poaching trade of rhino horn, and it's not talked about as much, but uh, the illegal killing of lions as well. And it is only those areas that have uh, concerted efforts in hunting concessions. Which are being uh, are able to hold on to their populations right now, and it's something that a lot of people don't appreciate. Uh, well, absolutely, and of course, you know, we, we also need to look at the um, the issue with um, with population and land use. Um, yeah, there were one um, there were 120 million Africans in 1900, and and I think they were due to be 2.4 billion 
by 2050, which is double the number that there are now. That's just Africans in Africa. The landmass hasn't got any bigger. So when you're, um, when you're looking at the available land and the, and the massively increasing number of peoples who are putting, who are putting pressure on that land, um, in order to maintain any areas at all for wildlife hab habitat, um, they have to see a value in that because otherwise, as we've seen in the past, all that they do is encroach and encroach and encroach and wildlife habitat becomes cattle grazing. Uh, cattle need vastly more acreage per head themselves because they're not um, naturally, naturally, um, inclined to live in that, that, those areas, whereas the wild game animals are. Um, so you end up with massive ca cattle uh, ranching degrades the land enormously and denudes it of its natural um, ungulates and the predators that, that prey on them. So in order, for, um, in order for areas of land to be maintained in the future for natural populations in Africa and elsewhere, there has to be a monetary value that's seen and appreciated by the people that live there um, for that land. You can't just put it aside um, so that people, you know, sensitive Westerners can look at it and say, oh, isn't it nice to have that, uh, while the locals are unable to eat. Mm. And there's no doubt about it that um, trophy hunting and other hunting activities that go on um, allow the, the environment to, be, to maintain itself in its more natural state far better, um, and it allows the... The, the procreation of the animals that naturally live there to go on, on in a sustainable way for, for, for our children and their children. The argument that is quite often used to counter that, and I obviously totally agree with what you're saying, is that, well, why don't we run photographic safaris in those yeah. places? Which... Well, it's not either or all. You can do both. Um, mm. But, of course, you know, there are certain areas where photographic safaris don't want to go. You know, when I hunted elephant in the Okavango Delta back in 2007... Uh, we were hunting in concessions which were basically thick Mopani scrub. Um, people don't want to go there and take photographs because you could travel all day and not see anything apart from footprints. Um, they want Photographic safaris want to be in areas where you've got open savannah where you can see the game from miles off and you can go around and take lots of photographs of giraffes batting their eyelids at you and springbuck prancing nicely and waiting for you to take your shots. They don't want to go into setsy fly-infested thick mapani um, and, and 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 traverse the black mambas and the um, and the puff adders and the lions that might be sleeping behind some tree that you don't see in order to get you know within fifteen yards of an elephant that you can hear but probably can't even see. So there are areas where photographic tourism just doesn't work. The other thing about photographic tourism is that. It require, it's far more hostile to the ground. You put two hunters on the ground to hunt an area and they leave no footprint, really. Uh, you put um, multiples into camps for photographic safaris and drive them round and round and round all the time. Um, and they, they, they leave a much bigger um, carbon footprint. They leave a much bigger environmental impact. Uh, they also demand more. You know, when you're in a hunting camp, you're pretty much in a tented camp on the ground. Um, a lot of the photographic safaris, people require, uh, you know, they're tourists who are really there to look at things. They don't 
really prepare, they don't really understand what they're doing, and they need to be protected, and they need a much bigger, more impactful infrastructure around them in terms of camp and vehicles in order to protect them from you know their own inability to not get eaten or trodden on. The number that I, that I hear, and I, th- I think it could probably be more, is you need about 10 to 1 uh, to bring in the same income as a hunter. 10 photographic uh, tourists for one. Oh, for one easily. Hunter. Yeah, I would think that's that's absolutely right. Um, and as I say, of course, it's it's there are certain areas where photographic safaris just aren't viable. Um, the other thing, of course, is that um, it's not... It's not a one-size-fits-all. I'm not arguing against photographic tourism. Um, it's you know, the, 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 the true path towards sustainability of African populations and African environments is going to be a multi-headed one. Photographic safaris are going to be part of that. Um, and hunting safaris need to be part of that as well. How do we take that uh, that sort of argument and justification back closer to home if we, are, uh, we live up in Scotland here? Uh, you, you're down south, but the, the hunting is pretty much uh, pretty much the same. In terms of how we maintain what we have and the management that we have, because it's continually being encroached and attacked by people who would rather see us not hunting stags, not uh, managing moorland for grouse. It's a shame, um, and I don't. If, if I'm being pessimistic, I don't see the mainstream getting any better. Perhaps we can we can combat it with education, evidence. I my my argue, my 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 approach to these things tend to use reason and evidence, appeal to people's um, ability to process and to reason rationally, um, because we can't do anything else. It's it's the only weapon available to us. But, but we have right on our side because the evidence is there, and it needs to be pushed forward. Um, you know, we live, unfortunately, with a, a, an increasing population um, who are removed from the, the, the essence of humanity and nature and how they interact, of life and death and how they're part of, of each other. Um, and we, we have to combat it with, with evidence and reason. Um, but I think it's a it's a losing battle. If I'm frank, I think we're um, we're struggling manfully with it. But the um, the momentum is is with the sentimental and the ignorant. Mm. Uh, my 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 greatest fear is that eventually they will realise that they were wrong. But at that point, it might be too late. Um, I certainly think in Scotland you're facing a lot of very um, dogmatic and um, and political ideal driven agendas going on, and you know again, people who are driven by those things are not interested in evidence and reason. They are driven through political ideology, um, and they're driven through a, a, a grievance narrative that they won't have challenged. This is a, a very hard question to answer because I'm sure that if someone could answer it, we would be doing it. But what can we change? How can we affect the people, affect the politicians 
and make sure that the information which we've all just been discussing for the last hour and a half is there and is taken on board by the people. Because if you don't have people on side, as in the general public, you won't have the politicians on side. Because we all know that the only thing that they're truly interested in is uh, getting their job back in four years' time. And it's that that is where we need to be uh we need to sort of be be forceful in terms of getting information out and it's a really hard thing to do when we have a, a media and a general feeling across the public the way that we have and what we've just been discussing well i think all we can do is try to push it more and more into the mainstream and not be afraid to tackle it um and not be afraid to say this is who we are and this is what we do and this is why we do it and not to shy away from um, from the essence of that. Um, I think sometimes we can be rather coy um, and I think sometimes sometimes we try we try to to mask what we do by minimizing the certain elements of it and trying to maximize other elements of it and I think sometimes it seems disingenuous. I mean if Certainly, you know, if I go and shoot a deer, the deer will be butchered and I'm going to eat it. But I could just as easily go and buy meat in the supermarket and eat it. So I don't go and shoot deer because if I didn't, I would starve or because if I didn't, I wouldn't get any any meat to eat. I go go and shoot deer and I shoot pigeons and I shoot other things, uh, partly because I like eating them, but also because... Hunting is part of who I am and part of what I do, um, and I get pleasure from it. You know, it's a sport. Hunting, um, fishing, shooting—they are sports because there's an element of challenge. There's an element of enjoyment. There's an element of risk. There's an element of uh, physical um, preparation and delivery that you need to uh, you need to prepare and put into practice in order to make it work. And it's a sport which has, I think, for all of human history, been seen as manly, been seen as admirable, been seen as essential in defining who we are as human beings. For most of human history, if you couldn't hunt, you didn't eat. And I think it's only very recently that people have started to disparage hunting and, dev- and and maintaining the skills as hunters that we have as human beings, which, which have actually enabled us to get to this point in history. Um, I think it's only very recently that people have looked on that as something negative and we need to push back. Mm. We need to, we need to, um, we, we need to make people appreciate that these are essential human skills, which, uh, which should be celebrated. Um, and that when we do practice them, as long as we practice them in a way that is, is enhancing and sustaining the quarry that we, we appreciate and that we understand and that we revere and that we hunt, then, then we're doing something good, not something negative. Yeah. I, I, was, I was asked by, actually just this morning, by my cousin, and this kind of goes on to something that I wanted to speak to you about, probably one, one of the last things, which is hunting ethics. And he was—he uh, had actually just been listening to a previous podcast, the one that was out uh, last month, uh, where uh, we had David uh, David CP on there, and he was describing after the kill 
the tradition of blooding and, and uh, the whole experience for this particular student that he had taken through his sort of training to his first animal. And my cousin was saying to me, why, why and how can we justify blooding an animal, uh, blooding a person from an animal? And is it not disrespectful to that particular animal? Now, he, he is actually a hunter. In fact, this morning he shot a seeker somewhere in the hills in, in, New, Zealand. Uh, in New Zealand. But he uh, is newer to that aspect of hunting, although we've uh, shot most of our lives together with... Uh, with air rifles before he moved to New Zealand, and I was I was trying to explain to him the the, the tradition plus the respect aspect of it and tying it into to photographs. But how would you explain that particular aspect of tradition and how that ties back to the respect of your quarry? Well, I think everything has to be seen in context, and this you know, this is um, whether or not you're you're seeing the, the, the you Europeans putting a sprig of of um, of leaf into the into the mouth of the animal before, when they, and laying it out, playing a tune on a trumpet over it at the end of the hunt to show respect, or whether you're putting a, putting some blood of the animal on you, or whether you're wearing a piece of an animal you've shot, or whether you're putting its skull over your mantelpiece. Um, all of these things have to be seen in the context of the hunting culture from which they come. Um, out of context, almost anything can look bizarre and barbaric and stupid. Um, and different countries and different cultures have their own hunting cultures, which have to be seen within that context. So, yes, on the face of it, you know, blooding a child in his first hunt, if you see that out of context, it seems stupid, pointless, ritualistic and um, disrespectful. But in the context from which it's come, it's none of those things. It's uh, it is perhaps ritualistic, but it's um, it, it's showing the passage for into um, you know from having not hunted to having killed your first animal, um, and that that's something that you need to to mark and to show reverence to and to treat not lightly. Um, I think people who don't hunt and don't kill animals um, perhaps just have no idea they don't have any perception of the fact that the, we who do hunt them actually revere the animals and take very seriously what we do i think when you eat meat that's been produced for you in the supermarkets um, or just been put on your table by somebody else you have a totally blasé and non-connected attitude to it you know to the waste of meat to the use of meat to the eating of meat people just see it as another commodity when you're actually involved with, you know, taking a, a live animal and putting it on the ground and taking its life and turning it into meat, um, I think you you take that seriously um, and you connect with it in a way that that people that don't do that just don't. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that if you take hunting as as a as a cultural heritage. Be that as it may, the different ways that different countries and different parts of different countries have something which they would class as tradition of hunting. If that was any other kind of culture around the world and it was treated the way it is in the social media, there would be a public outcry. There is. And I think, but again, I think all these things have to be taken into context because plain devil's advocate, you could argue that, you know, in certain cultures, 
uh, uh, dogfighting and, and, and bear baiting are, are part of their cultures and should be left alone. But I think you can quite quickly get rid of those things because you can't, I don't think you can argue um, in, in terms of sportsmanship, um, cultivation, respect, and ongoing health of populations, uh, that any of those things stack up. Whereas, whereas responsible hunting of, um, of, of free-ranging populations of, of animals, um, it does provide that, that ongoing sustainability and viability, which is part of the circle of life that we are. What, what hunters want to see is that circle of life continuing forever. Yeah. Um, that there will always be those wild populations of animals there. That we will always be able to go out into the wild places and hunt them um, in the way that our ancestors did and in the way that I hope our children and grandchildren will. Yeah, and that is something very, very misunderstood. It is not about wiping wiping species out because that is what poachers do and as you described earlier, and hunting very much is about making sure that you're leaving it uh, better for the future generations. Well, that's right. And I was talking to somebody quite recently who was saying to me, you know, why do you pay money to go and kill animals in foreign countries? And of course, they, they completely bypass the idea that I, I don't. I, go, I pay money to go to foreign countries and hunt animals. Mm. Um, and part of that hunting means, um, means I may not kill one. You know, people don't realize a lot of the time that when hunters go out and hunt, they often don't kill anything. Um, yet it's not considered wasted time. No. Point, me and Byron were hunting for five days and we didn't get anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still enjoyed it. <laughs> Only a few weeks ago. <laughs> now, I, I wanted to just finish up asking you something about um, or digging into hunting ethics because although you know, we, we sit here and we defend what we do as hunters, undoubtedly, and we did allude to this earlier, there will be some things which are done or some aspects of hunting which may not be particularly tasteful, potentially, or necessarily right. And the first thing that kind of springs to mind with that, uh, it has come up in the past. I have no doubt that it will be uh, brought up again by people who are really just anti-hunting, but it's an aspect that they can attack. And that is this sort of pro proliferation of high bird shoots uh, we see it time and time again you see a number of videos actually even named you know high bird pheasants i don't have the skill to personally shoot them so i so i wouldn't do it but there has to be some sort of justification for wanting to continually push the limits if you're continually pushing the limits undoubtedly the op opportunity for you to wound something is going to increase. And I have no idea what your, your views are on that, but it's just something I wanted to, to ask you about. Well, my view on it, my personal approach to pheasant shooting is that, I mean, I shoot old guns with no choke in them, and I like to shoot pheasants in a fairly traditional setting. Um, I don't, I, I personally don't see pheasant shooting, from my point of view, as almost like an Olympic sport whereby you're constantly trying to get higher and higher and higher and higher um, in order to prove that you can hit it more and hit more of them than somebody else. Um, shooting to me, is ne me has never been something I've considered as competitive, um, which is why I've never had any real interest in, 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 in competition or clay pigeon shooting. Um, I think 
you know, knowing the, the, or having spoken to people who do a lot of high pheasant shooting, um, when they have the necessary skill, when they have the right equipment, what they want to do when they go shooting is challenge themselves to shoot birds which are challenging. Um, now, you know, somebody like Dave Carey shooting his big heavy marukus or brownings or whatever it is he uses, I think they're marukus, uh, with very long barrels and very, very tight chokes and very heavy cartridges. Um, and that's those are the sorts of targets that he practices on and is very good at shooting. I think he would probably say if he were faced with 25-yard pheasants flitting over a, a, a tree, he'd be bored and unchallenged, and it would be relatively unsporting because he'd just kill everything he shot at. So in order for it to be challenging, he, he needs and wants to have um, targets that challenge his skill level with the equipment that he uses. I've stood on driven pheasant drives with a gun and watched pheasants coming over and stopped shooting because I felt gun, shooter, cartridge combination were not right for the environment in which they found themselves um, and just stopped. Um, I've, 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 it's only happened a couple of times in my life, but it's happened. And, um, and I just stopped shooting and watched the rest of the line because it's... If I ever get to the point where I feel that, you know, when I pull the trigger, I have no idea where I missed the bird or why, then I shouldn't be shooting at it. Normally, if I miss a bird, I make a mental calculation uh, that I was offline, I was behind, I didn't swing through, whatever it is. I normally know why I've missed it and try to compensate on the next one. If I feel that I have no idea why I've missed the bird, then I shouldn't be shooting at it. I suppose you could draw some parallels with that to uh, the increased desire to long-range shoot, hunt. They would say hunt, I would say probably shoot, especially in America, uh, you know, where they're taking increasingly longer and longer distance shots on, on big game. What is your I think it's pointless. I mean, I understand the long-range shooting idea, and I think a lot of the long-range shooting came from the people out on the prairie shooting gophers and things, sticking their heads up at city ranges and and, and developing super hot, small ball, uh, small caliber loads to to shoot them with, because that's the only way you can get near them. Fine, absolutely fine. When it comes to shooting dangerous game or big game at range, my approach is the opposite. I want to get as close to the thing as I possibly can, because for me, the skill is in the hunt. Um, I want. I don't. I, I never shoot deer further away than two hundred yards in this country, and, and um, probably most of the deer I shoot are within a hundred yards. Um, I'd say the same with with the stuff I hunt in Africa. I have no interest in sniping stuff from long range, and I don't practice my shooting so that I can. Um, for me, and it's a personal thing. I'm not saying this is better than anybody else's. Uh, but for me, the hunting element is about being able to get as close to my quarry as I can. Pulling the trigger and putting it on the deck um, is a is a test of nerve, of shooting skill, and of um, and of being able to get in the right position. But I I personally find the uh, the excitement, the thrill, the engagement with my with the surroundings that I'm on and the hunting of the animal to be more rewarding when it's actually getting on the ground and getting close to your quarry yeah I mean I I, I would most definitely agree with you and it's the reason that I I do 
a bit of hunting every year with open sights and that's why i've taken up bow shooting so that one day i can i can hunt with a bow once i'm competent enough i do wonder just with with regard to that question of, of long range shooting whether irrespective of your personal view about how you hunt whether we have as as a hunting society is there an ethical problem with that? Should we be well, condoning it? I think there are different kinds of shooting. I mean, I've shot, you mentioned your friend shooting in New Zealand. I've shot Seeker in New Zealand, um, and they were longer shots than I'd ever take in England. Mm. Uh, but that's because that's as close as you can get to them. So where the hunting terrain requires you to take long shots, like mountain hunting for sheep or, 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 or hunting high up in the New Zealand hills for, um, for seeker, which are very hard to get close to, um, then you equip yourself with, um, with rifles and sights that are up to the job and make sure that your shooting's up to the job. In that case, I've got no, no, no query, I've got no uh, qualms about it. Um, I think shooters have always tested themselves to try and see how far they can put a bullet onto a target at a given range. And I think that's part of humanity, that you're always pushing the boundaries and trying to see if you can do something you couldn't do before, if you can do something nobody else has managed to do yet. And I think that's that's a healthy competitive um, element of being in competition with yourself in terms of your skills and honing your skills. Um, and sometimes when you're in a situation where you're culling large numbers of animals, whether it be in Scotland or in Africa, um, you do need to take a lot of long range shots with precision. And as long as you're skilled enough and you have the right equipment to do the job well in the right circumstances, I've got no problem with it. Yeah, it's all about circumstances, terrain. Is there is there a need to do it? rather than pushing it, pushing boundaries for the sake of doing it. It's all about, it's all about context. Mm -hmm. uh, Degory, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and uh, debate what we've talked about today and get the first-hand account of what it was like to be on a, on a sofa with Pierce Morgan. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who uh, appreciate the, uh, the sort of behind-the-scenes, and I hope that there's a lot of takeaways from our discussion today that people will be able to have a think about. We're fortunate that we do have a number of uh, listeners who are not actually hunters or fishers or generally people who would spend a lot of time uh, in the countryside and consider themselves as sort of country folk but they're intrigued by what is discussed and what is debated and I, I hope for them they will be able to uh, it'll it, or what's been discussed will open their mind and I'm sure it will it's been an absolute pleasure anytime thank you very thank much, you very much. And that's it for another week. In two weeks' time, we will be bringing you a live debate that we recorded at the Scottish Game Fair at Schoon Palace run by the GWCT. The subject is going to be rewilding. It was a rather interesting topic with some great characters. So listen out for that in two weeks' time. Yep. And remember that all of our topics come from our listeners. So if you have a suggestion of any topics you want discussed uh, throughout the year on the show then get in touch with us at podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. It's also in the description or send us a message on Facebook, which many of you do. And we'll try and arrange, arrange the show. We've got Working Dogs coming up at some point very soon. We're already in contact with a person to do that. We have been asked to have Gamekeepers on again. We'll try and get hold of them before the season starts. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to be covering uh, Lyme disease as well. We will be covering Lyme disease. And yeah, we've got many, many more things coming up throughout the year. So yeah, just uh, 
send us uh, an email and we we'll, like to hear from you. Yeah, we like to hear from you and we make it happen. We make it happen. Now, it's competition time. It is. And the competition is to win a Spyderco folding knife. It's pretty awesome. It's yep. a good prize. Uh, you're going to have to be over the age of 18 to enter because of UK laws. But uh, here is how you enter. Okay, so a little bit of background yes. to the, the competition. Uh, just over a week ago, I took a picture of some milk in Asda. And it was an Arla cooperative milk. And on the packaging, it says it gives 25 pence back to the farmers uh, for every milk that you buy. I'll hold it up for the YouTube people. And what we want you to do for the competition is send us a picture of you buying, purchasing British produce. Any British projects. If you want to do it with the milk, then that's great. Yep. But any British farming projects will do. Yep, it is. And hopefully that will get some more people to buy some uh, British produce. Yeah, we're a big this, supporter of British farming. This uh, <laughs> this picture I took has now been seen by over 50,000 people, which is crazy. Staggering. <laughs> Staggering. And we're still getting comments uh, every single day. The picture that you send in can be across any platform. We'll let you tag it on Instagram. We'll let you tag us on, uh, send us an on, email. on Facebook. Email, send us in a message, whatever you want. We'll take a note. The important thing there is just take the picture, put it up on social media to let other people know that you're supporting British farming because we do. Yep, we do. Thank you very much for listening. Once again, uh, this podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. And it can be downloaded on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and can be watched on YouTube. No excuse not to listen. No, no excuse whatsoever. So, yeah. Until next time.